Welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Wonger. Hello there, Spirited Advocate Podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us today. And we got a great guest today, uh, John Ralph with Intrepid Spirits. John, thank you. Thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, a, a great standing member of the Distilled Spirits Council. Uh, and we are really excited to hear about uh, what's going on at Intrepid. Uh, big congratulations to you. I know y'all just recently relocated from the great city of San Francisco to Newport Beach, California, which is not bad living. So, uh, John, welcome. And uh, thank, thank you, you for being, being here with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, no, it's great. I listen to the podcast quite regularly, so it's uh, it's an honor to be involved. Yeah, John, tell us a little bit about Tre- Intrepid uh, Top Line. You've got a great staple of great brands. Uh, just tell us about the concept. You've been in the business uh, for about about 10 years. Uh, oh, with yeah. certainly some foundation from Ireland, and you do business all over the world. Uh, yeah. Share a little bit with yeah, of course. Look, I can give you a bit of, um, I can give you the, the, I'll give you the very short version of the story because I can talk about this for hours. But um, just a bit on my personal side, I've actually, I've actually, funny enough, as of December, I think it marked my twentieth year in the in the industry in the liquor business as such. Um, I'm only thirty nine years old, so I've been in the industry since before I was legally allowed to drink in the United States. But plenty legal in Ireland. I mean, nineteen yeah. is by far by far old enough. But um, we consider sometimes we start earlier, they say in Ireland. But anyway, we um, give you a bit of my background. I think uh, I, I set my first business up when I was 16. And that was uh, the rickshaws. So a rickshaw, I don't know if you you know what a rickshaw is, but it's a cart you carry people around in. And I you used know, to work at night delivering people to nightclubs and bars and restaurants, you know, when I was 16 years old to make a Good bit of extra you. pocket money. Yeah. And then I kind of, you know, if someone said they'd build me one. So I bought one more. I bought my one of my own. And bought another and then we had 10 and then we sort of i built this kind of you know relatively successful little rickshaw company in dublin back in uh back in the mid mid 90s um i then when i turned 18 i realized this was an unregulated business there was no insurance and even though i went to the government to try and have the whole thing regulated i kind of got laughed out of the uh laughed out of the department of transportation equivalent in ireland because who the hell is this 18 year old coming in and saying we should we should regulate a specific uh, subjection of, of the industry or whatever. Anyway, so at that point, I, I sold off the, the actual rickshaws um, and then I got in uh, the rickshaws, but I maintained the advertising rights, which was, uh, I think was a smart move in the end because we managed to secure, you know, it was, it was a good insight for me at a young age into how the advertising industry worked. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I started promoting nightclubs. Um, just, it was kind of a, a side project almost. And with that, then I got into knowing all the nightclub managers because I knew them all from, sorry, I knew them from the rickshaws, but then I was, um, I started importing energy drinks. Uh, sorry, I'm confusing myself here, Chris. Sorry, let me just start that okay. part again. Okay. Can, uh, this is amazing. You're an uh, entrepreneurial, uh, yes. you got an entrepreneurial spirit, right? Yes, indeed. So I was, yeah, promoting nightclubs. And then through that, I got into energy drink distribution, which is a long story. But energy drink distribution gave me my first sort of dip into the world of uh, spirits. So I got approached by a, a spirits company back into, it was, you know, early, mid 2000, uh, the year 2000. And they wanted to get involved with me, partner with my energy drink business to sell into the Irish on trade. 
And it was kind of a bit of a moonshot, to be honest with you. I just took a swing in it and uh, found that it was a space I really liked. And so we launched a brand called Mickey Finn. And we subsequently built that in Ireland to be the number one liqueur in the country. Uh, you know, obviously Bailey's was number one in fruit liqueur, but we sure. were the number one in sort of flavored spirits. So we were outselling Malibu and Kahlua combined in Ireland. So we got us about 30,000 nine liter cases, which in the context of a small country like Ireland was quite a considerable piece of business. Uh, along, you know, as a result of that, then we had kind of had an infrastructure. And then I picked up the phone. I met Bob Nolet at a uh, Kettle One. I met him at a trade show in the UK a couple of years before that. And this, so in about 2004, I literally just picked up the phone or sent him an email. I thought it was probably how it happened and uh, asked him for the distribution rights for Kettle One. And he came to Dublin. He saw what we were doing, thought it was really interesting and said, sure, we'll give you Kettle One. And that was kind of the first time we sort of really stepped into having a super you know, well-respected brand. And that really opened the floodgates for us. So with Kettle One, then we got Patron Tequila, we got Campari, we got Aperol, oh, wow. we had. So we had a really cool portfolio of brands in Ireland. Um, and yeah, we, were the, we were sort of the pioneers of cocktail culture back sort of 2004 to 2000, late 2007. Obviously, as we all know, in late 2007, the world started to, uh, started to go on fire at a pretty rapid pace. And sadly enough, Ireland was probably the most, the most sort of damaged economy in Europe at the time. We were highly leveraged into property. Uh, the financial industry made up a huge part of the economy. And uh, as a result, Ireland sort of suffered. But it was an interesting time for us because, you know, whilst we had to obviously make fairly dramatic changes to our, to our domestic business in Ireland, some friends of mine who were living out in Shanghai we're actually looking at setting up a drinks distribution company. And uh, we just, you know, we had a call on the phone one day. They wanted, uh, you know, they wanted me to, uh, to maybe give them some guidance and some tips about how they might go about it. And on the call, we decided, Asher, why, why don't we just do it together? You know, let's, I'll, wow. you know, we'll call it Bringman Beverages. I'll take a stake in the business and then it'll give a sort of credibility to what you're doing in China because we've got a track record. Um, and so that was that was the start of setting up a uh, import company in China. That's, so what was that? 2008, late 2007 into 2008. And so then I'm um, sort of, uh, you know, as Ireland, obviously, we downsized, you know, the, the market just got a lot smaller for premium spirits, yeah. to be honest with you. Uh, but we sort of hobbled along as it was at the time with a smaller team. But I would sort of. Every three months, I would take a trip out to China for a board meeting. <laughs> yeah. It was a great excuse to go out to Shanghai, see my friends and see the market. It was just such a dynamic market at the time. You just, everything was changing so fast in the late sort of 2008, 2009. And then it was, I think it was towards the end of 2010. I was like, you know what? I was just about to turn 30. I had a lot of, um, you know, I, sorry, I had no sort of connections to Ireland in terms of I wasn't married, no kids, no mortgage, no, you know, nothing that was sort of anchoring me there. Obviously, friends and family. Sure. But so I decided to sort of make a bold move and move to Shanghai in, uh, in March 2011. So I kind of celebrated my 30th birthday uh, in Dublin first. And then I jumped on a plane the next day to Shanghai. And then we went down to Hong Kong for the Hong Kong Sevens. So that was my move to China. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. But yeah, oh, I guess it's been fascinating time, right? Uh, yeah, completely. I mean, if you looked at the global economy, you know, China was just powering boom, ahead. Boom, and, you know, it, was, it wasn't just economic activity. It was also watching this country transform literally in front of your eyes. You know, living in Shanghai, we were at the epicenter of development. So you would see literally just towers go up in, in a space of months. Um, yeah. It's just incredible to see it. 
I knew about lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It was a fascinating time to be there. Um, and it kind of set the, um, I guess that set the foundation for you know where we are today because it would have been in uh, 2013 when we uh, came up with the idea for Cocalero, um, which was really the first brand that ultimately became what we are in Trepidspurs today. So we created Cocalero in uh, early 2013. We launched it out into the Asia, Asia Pacific region. So Korea was our first market. Um, then we went into, uh, we can talk maybe a bit more about the brands later in detail, but Korea was our first market. Then China, Korea, sorry, China, Japan, and Hong Kong. And so we really had an Asia Pacific start with that brand. And today, Cocalero is the number one imported brand, uh, imported liqueur in Japan by value. So we outsell all of the major brands you can think of, Jägermeister, Kahlua, Malibu, um, you know, there's a there's a list of brands, international brands there, Campari, that we are in terms of flavored spirits by far the uh, the market leader in terms of value there. And John Cocalero comes from the Andes, right? South America, right? It does. It's this we 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 like to call it the sacred spirit of the Andes, and uh, you know we we have a partnership with a with a really cool distillery in La Paz. Um, it's actually you know the, there's a couple of there's a bit of arguments around who is the highest distillery in the world. But uh, we're, we're pretty confident in, in our one at 3,500 3, meters above sea level uh, that we are the highest distillery in the world. Uh, and it's really interesting when you, when you talk, when you get into production at that, that, at that altitude, because of the difference in atmospheric pressure, it actually, I, I don't want to nerd out here on this, but because of the difference in atmospheric pressure, when you are doing a distillation with botanicals and macerations, you actually get a completely different interaction because you you alcohol boils at a much lower boiling point. I bet. So it's um, it, you know there's a, there's a lot of really nerdy parts to that. But so we have a we have a, a sort of craft distillery there which works with, with which works with us on on our Cochlear Daltura product. But the overall product itself, we talk about it sort of being inspired by the culture and flavors of, of South America. Awesome. And uh, tell us about. Uh... Egan Irish Whiskey, and, and you've got some great partners uh, that Intrepid helps with, including uh, Michener's, right? Tell us a little bit about that, if you could. Sure. Well, look, Egan's is, um, Egan's is a great story. Um, it goes back a long time. Myself and Jonathan Egan have been friends, Jesus, uh, 20 years now, just under 20 years. And, um, you know, I was down, funny enough, I was down in his house in Kildare, just outside Dublin, this would be back in 2004, and uh, op openly I was in the bathroom, I was sitting on the throne, and on the wall, I was looking <laughs> at it, and there was like all this memorabilia of Egan's Irish whiskey, and I was just fascinated. So I went out, and his father, Victor, was uh, sitting out, we, we were drinking glasses of wine at, at the time, and I, said, I asked Victor the story, so tell me about our Egan's Irish whiskey, and he told me the whole family story, which is, I would need hours to tell you the whole story, but a really fascinating history of a very successful merchant family, multi multi generational um, merchant family in Ireland who really were you know major employers in the Midlands of Ireland. A, real, a really rich history, and one of the one of the they did everything. So there was a story that used to say, or the saying was, the Egans would take care of you from the cradle to the grave. So they would sell your parents the uh, crib you were born, the cot you'd be in as a baby, and they sell you the coffin to bury your parents in. <laughs> that was, and so along the funny. way, you would drink their beer, you'd stay in their hotels, you'd buy groceries from their grocery stores. But a, a really interesting family history. And it was just a very captivating story. And I think it was that evening in 2004, we said, we should resurrect the Egan's whiskey brand. And of course, we drank too much wine. The next sure. day, we, we didn't get it done. And 
every year we'd have the same conversation of, come on, let's uh, do this again. And it was not until I moved to Shanghai, actually, in 2011, when uh, myself and Jonathan Egan shared an apartment in the French concession in Shanghai, when we really started to put a bit of uh, impetus behind it. And then I think, honestly, once I started uh, Cocolero and I understood really the nuances of supply chain and bringing a brand to life was when we could really get going at it in earnest. So myself and Johnny went from having this as a sort of project we talk about after a few beers to, okay, how do we put some, put some structure to this? So we did, we, we did a sort of big outreach to the whole Egan's family. And one of, the, uh, one of the people who was really receptive to the project was a gentleman by the name of Morris Egan. He's, uh, he, lives in, he lives actually down in Johannesburg in South Africa. And he was the group head of manufacturing for Saab Miller, but he was, a, he was like the family historian. He knew everything about the, brand, the history of the company. And so myself, Johnny and Morris really kind of led the project. And then multiple other members of the Egan's family got involved more from a sort of, you know, as a part of participation oh, being in the family business. What it did give us was a real, you know, an honest and true brand story that this is the Egan's family come bringing this brand back to life, as opposed to multiple brands you see out there, which have, you know, they, they pick up a name and run with it. Like Not we have the same family. lineage. And, no, exactly. and John, about two, that was 2012, right? That would so, have been 15, 14, I think it was 14, 15. Yeah, so by, around that time, Irish whiskey was really taken off again, right? As, yes. As, yeah, well, so it you was, kind of caught the right wave. Yeah, exactly. I think what we noticed at the time was there was, you know, obviously you've got your behemoth, which is Jameson, and that as as Jameson goes, goes Irish whiskey from a statistical point of view, right? There's a lot of talk around Irish whiskey and the volumes and the growth, but you know, the real, reality is most of that's Jameson. And what we felt was there was there was a gap in the market for a brand with that sort of true connection to a family family heritage. And the direction we wanted to go in was to really mirror what the Egan's whiskey, Egan family were about with whiskey back in the day. They were never a distiller. They were a bonder and a bottler. And what that did is sort of that unleashes us to be very creative in the products, we, in, the, in the whiskeys we release as well. So, you know, we, we have partnerships with most of the sort of major distilleries in Ireland, and we then work with them to create, you know, we are working on new make from specific mash bills, which will come out in 10 years time, let's say. But we also work with them with some of their aged stocks. We do some really innovative cask finishing. Um, so, yeah, so I'm probably digressing slightly from the, from the question here, but um no, it's it's an exciting brand to, to be working on. John, tell us about uh, uh, Intrepid in, in the U.S. footprint. I, I know y'all do business all over the world with these great brands. Uh, yeah. Where's y'all's focus in the U.S.? I mean, a big part of the, the business platform is certainly in the on-premise. Which, yeah. uh, <laughs> that was an interesting. You've encountered some challenges through the pandemic yeah. and so forth. Uh, tell us about your uh, your focus on the on the U.S. marketplace at the moment. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, as you as you rightly pointed out, you look at our portfolio uh, with Cocolero, Egan's, um, Mad March, Air Putching, our, 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 you know, the new vermouth we bought. It's very on premise focus. So we we started off this year with a really sorry. If we start off twenty twenty, I, I keep forgetting we're in a new year. We started off twenty twenty with a very ambitious plan. In sure. partnership with our importer here, Levesque, uh, Levesque Company, who I'm sure you you know, of. Mm-hmm. and we had a very ambitious plan for what we wanted to achieve in 2020. Obviously, um, things started looking a bit sideways by sort of late February, early, and then by mid March, it was like kadunk. And um, 
you know, it's it's been an interesting bit of a, it was a soul searching first half of the year, I think, to be brutally honest with you, trying to find the right direction to go in in the US. And uh, ultimately, obviously, we've had to kind of, we've had to make some changes to in terms of our approach. So we are, we're kind of taking a digital first approach here in the US now. So there's, there's two sides to it. We've got Egan's Irish Whiskey, obviously, is doing, we've now done a national deal with Total Wine. So we're working with Total Wine in most in all, every state they operate in, which is very exciting. That pushes us very much towards the off-premise. Um, and for the time being, there's not going to be a lot of on-premise activity around Egan's. But in the with the rest of the portfolio, we're really pushing, we're pushing on a digital first approach. So what that means, we really working on the likes of all our direct consumer, you know, with you know our you know our own store. We have we we're looking to work with the likes of Drizzly, Reserve Bar, all these sort of third party sites as well, where we're going to really invest behind uh, you know behind e-commerce and digital. And then what we think that'll do is that'll help give us a roadmap for really getting back into the on-premise as well. So the idea being that we'll start to be able to, you know, you can look with the with technology and data insights these days, you can really start to look at where consumers are purchasing your product already. And then that'll help us drive our, you know, 2021 half. So we really think it's going to be the second half of 21 before we really, we're really going hell for leather at the on-premise again. But we'll start to be able to make really educated and informed decisions based on, well, where are consumers picking our products up? At an e-commerce on an e-commerce level, and then build sort of build a sort of mini fires around those pockets of people. Um, I think that's going to be that's probably going to be. Why would I say that's kind of the the silver lining that's going to come out of this time, right? So it's it's oh. enabled us to be a lot more focused on our investments, and it's going to be clear going forward how we our marketing dollars will be a lot more efficiently spent and focused on specific uh, specific regions and areas. So we'll get right down to a granular level on that. And John, I mean, obviously, e-commerce was percolating quite a bit pre-pandemic. Yes. Uh, you know, it's been great to see the Drizzlies and the Reserve Bars and the Mini Bars and Libdeb yeah. and all those great platforms really do well to help create that consumer pool. And do you feel like that that consumer pool will ultimately transcend to create that consumer pool on the on-premise side of things? So once things start to stabilize post-pandemic, God willing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, e-commerce was always, you know, even internally here, we have to get there when we have to do that one day, right? It was, yeah. We're busy doing everything else. And obviously, recent times have now accelerated that investment in time and energy and focus. And I think where that's going to do, it's going to be great for niche brands because the, the typical distribution, traditional distribution structure, not just in America, but in any market, is always favors the bigger brands, they've got more sway with distribution partners, more sway with retailers. Whereas e-commerce, it's like that long tail effect. You can you can find any product you're looking for, and it's a lot easier for a niche brand to you know make a targeted investment and get their head above the power above the above the parapet. So I think what's exciting there is that it's going to almost you know there's there's almost a, a point where consumers are might might be starting to educate the trade as to what brands they should stock as opposed to the trade ed educated consumers about brands that they have on their back bar. Absolutely. So I think that's kind of where the, you know, it's going to be an interesting sort of future where, you know, there's probably a lot more knowledge being grown at the moment for niche brands and, and uh, you know, even different types of cocktails or different kind of consumption of products over, over the, over the coming, over the coming years with e-commerce. John, what makes, uh, I mean, the U.S. market is unique. It's a very unique marketplace compared to, 
you know, other markets around the world. Uh, where are the opportunities in the U.S. market? You know, once you get off and running in the U.S., you know, yeah. I've heard from many CEOs about the profitability and the opportunity in the U.S. The U.S. has some unique uh, infrastructure issues that mm-hmm. has helped contribute to the su- success. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just give us your perspective. What's unique about the U.S. where there's an opportunity versus some of the challenges that you experience in other markets in the world? Well, I think, look, I think the U.S. has, what what makes the U.S. a really exciting market is obviously the size of the prize is huge. I mean, that fundamentally, that drives every discussion. Every discussion. I think the amount, of, the amount of people I've heard is, oh, we're going to go make it in the U.S. and then flame out very quickly because it is not a, done sometimes, not a cheap place to do business. And, you know, we're, We've definitely made our fair share of mistakes along the way. Don't don't get me wrong. We've we we spent a lot more money than we should have. Let's just say. But you know the opportunity here is that you have a very structured market, right? So once you do get some traction, there is a, there's almost a playbook that's there in terms of you know you get over a certain size, then you get the way you can program your distributor, the way you can you know program retailers. It's very structured going forward. Like once you get off off the ground, it's expensive. But once you once you get up and running, there's a structure to it. And I think there is a playbook which is, you know, tried and tested uh, in getting getting to market here in the U.S. Once you get above that size, I think if you look at the rest of the world. You know, we do business in the likes of Japan, China, all over the world, and you know, you certainly the markets are evolving so fast in those markets. Where here, it's it's def- you're not going to see a huge change even in ten years from now from where it is today. It moves a bit more like an oil tanker. Whereas I can tell you in China. When I started a business in China, there was no e-commerce. Now it's the number one e-commerce market in the world for alcohol. And like I think it's 10% of all alcohol sold in China goes through e-commerce. Wow, you know, so I didn't know that. That's amazing. And that's growing. That's going to be 20% in two years' time. And you know, it's 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 insane. And particularly for niche products, it is just blowing up. And the reason for that is there's very little regulation around distribution in China. So you can set up a store and you can sell direct to consumer. Whereas obviously over here. There's a lot more regulation to it, um, and even you know, even as today we've, we're moving into that direct. We have a, a quasi direct consumer store where you know we're three we're with a three tier compliant um, a three tier compliant um, uh, fulfillment uh, system. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the great thing is we get the uh, we get all the benefit of the consumer data. So we know we know we we know who our customers are. We know where they're located, and so we can retarget them. We can really work to you know, engage them with our brands. But what you don't have is the route to market profitability that DTC, you know, all these other direct consumer brands might have, which is which is fine. I think, you know, we're still, we're operating on the same profitability as we would under normal circumstances, except that we've got a really tight set of data with, with consumers. Yeah. John, one of the uh, important roles that Discus has is obviously to create market access opportunities to meet consumer convenience needs, do it, of course, uh, within the appropriate regulatory framework and always with high standards of responsibility. Uh, What, if if I may, and you may not be prepared for this question, you know, at Discus, we've been uh, challenged with tariffs, uh, you know, in in markets around the world. Uh, You know, we, we are grappling, considering how to, fully leverage appropriately the e-commerce platform, support 
those great platforms that are within the three-tier system that have done well and so forth. Yeah. Uh, are there any, uh, you know, emerging issues from your perspective uh, that can ultimately be helpful for Intrepid's growth in the U.S. market or anywhere around the world uh, in, in the coming years? Emerging issues as, um, are we talking to regulatory issues? Regulatory, or? market access, supporting e-commerce platforms. Yeah, I think the tariffs. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously tariffs are, you know, we won't get we won't get that tariffs are not are not productive particularly in a particularly in an industry like ours which is brand driven right so yeah tariffs on whiskey are not protecting the u.s whiskey industry it, it's because you know people want to drink scotch Perfect. they want to drink irish it's, it's part of a, exactly. a broader selection of you know uh, a healthy selection of products um i think you know one of the challenges obviously is you know for e-commerce is you know for e-commerce and alcohol is you know uh, know, understanding distribution i think that's going to be the regular regulations around distribution and how how i think the industry might get smarter about it i mean obviously there's a big piece of this is state taxes so making sure that you know if there is a if there's a warehouse in it's called alabama and they're shipping to florida to to california maybe there's a better way that they're yeah you got to make sure the taxes are paid. Yeah, so state liquor taxes, et cetera, are properly recorded. I know they do it for non non regulated products where they do have sales taxes covered in each in each of the states. But I'd say that would be one thing that'll help sort of take some roadblocks out here in the U.S. Obviously, then you do have a very you know a large and powerful second tier in 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 the U.S. Which I don't know how that gets resolved in terms of is there a way that a wholesaler, the licensed wholesaler in a state gets a commission, an affiliate fee, let's call it, if they're, if a brand they represent is sold into that state from out of state. I don't know, there's a million ways to try and figure that out, but obviously with the three-tier system in place, that's going to be something that has to be understood before e-commerce can truly hit the potential it should do. Absolutely. And Discus, as you know, fully supports the three-tier system, but yeah. you know there are opportunities for the great three-tier system to evolve and uh, working closely with our distributor partners will be a key component. Of yeah. Uh, haven't been to California in a, a year and a half, maybe, but yeah. obviously uh, California has 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 been challenged with the pandemic and the shutdowns. Mm. Uh, have you seen directly how Cocktails to Go has helped uh, the on-premise establishments in California over the yeah. last nine to 10 months? Absolutely. I mean, I speak to a couple of bar owners and, um, you know, it's definitely, it's keeping, it's keeping the lights on. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a replacement for running a bar because why would, you know, if you've got, why would you want to pay high street rent, you know, main street rent here, Macy, right? Like imagine San Francisco and you've got big high overheads in terms of rent, selling some uh, bottled cocktails is not going to replace running a bar. But I think what is interesting for a lot of operators is that, assuming that you know legislation can support it but i think this is going to be an interesting addition to the bar to their to their overall offering going forward i think you know i can talk to uh, i'm a partner in a bar in dublin which is the world's first putching bar myself and a guy called dave mulligan we got together to create it it's quite an interesting bar it's called 1661 we won bar of the year in ireland last year but we've actually pivoted to do this. So I could, I'm just giving you some metrics that you know, I think are interesting over here. But we found that you know, we, we built, we went out of our way to design a really cool brand. So we made it a consumer brand as opposed to just being an extension of the bar. 
uh, and we you know we built its own little e-commerce store online and that that piece of business is now bigger than the bar was when we were trading wow so i think there's an opportunity for some you know some of the really really good bar owners who have a really good brand in their bar to leverage the the, the awareness of their brand create a really cool take home cocktail brand and sell it in the broader market and i think that's that's i think some of the thinking that might really help some of the you know some of the operators who faced you know undoubtedly the most challenging times in their in their in their in their history um little things like that i think are going to be an interesting sort of again another silver lining out of this is there might be some new industry some new markets created or new brands created coming out of it totally and eventually as the the vaccine rolls out and so forth people are going to be craving to get back to the oh. on-premise enjoy a great cocktail Absolutely. and a great chat with your friend without having to wear a face mask you know, yeah. and uh, just getting back and interacting with people. So are you yeah. confident that in due course, safely, obviously, is is most paramount, uh, that the on-premise will be roaring back in, in due time? There is absolutely no doubt it's going to happen. Um, and actually, you can see some early evidence of that. If you look to statistics in Australia, I don't have them penned out in front of me here. But, you know, if you if you look at Australia's on-premise has come back and is is absolutely roaring back to life uh, with it's like it never skipped a beat um at the moment so that's a good sign there was a big article on just drinks re- recently about it if any of the listeners want to check it out but it's uh, you know it's, it's a good sign that uh, you know the on-premise will come back well i think you know coming out of this look there's undoubtedly going to be some casualties in the on-premise i think we're going to lose a couple of operators for sure but what is going to come in that's what might replace that is even more innovative operators who are coming into spaces with probably more reasonable rent who can afford to be a bit more creative in their approach to you know to drinks and to to the offering so i think this the the long term of this will be that we end up with an on-premise that's taken another step forward in innovation another step forward in creativity so as we say there's there's a silver lining to everything but it's very hard obviously in the current uh, right now to look at it like that it it uh, I I I agree with you. There will be a silver lining when it's all said and done. But you know, hopefully, we're we're uh, just a few months away of getting back to normal. So, all right, uh, fire round question. You've been all over the world. Uh, you know, obviously, travel's limited now. Uh, if you could be in one place in the world and having your favorite favorite cocktail, uh, which brand would you pick? And where would you be? <laughs> that is a tough one. Um, oof, that is a very tough one. I think you know. I spend. I spend. I go to. I go to Japan four or five times a year um, for obvious reasons with our business there. And you know, one of my favorite bars there is uh, the, the the New York bar at the Park Hyatt. I mean, yeah. it, it's 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 a bit touristy, but I mean, for me, it's my friend's one of the managers of the hotel, and it's a it's just a, such an iconic bar. So uh, I'll give a shout out to Michter's here because uh, you know the Maglioka family are good friends, and I regularly will enjoy a, a Michter's old fashioned in the in the uh, New York bar at the Park Hyde in Tokyo. And I think if I could get somewhere, if I could jump on a plane tomorrow, I'd love to get back to there. Also, see some friends as well. Awesome, awesome. Well. Uh, look, on behalf of the Distilled Spirits Council and uh, a great toast uh, to Intrepid and to you. you. And uh, thank you for sharing with us uh, the great uh, story of your entrepreneurial career. Uh, 
you know, I wish looking back, maybe this was in the late 1990s, early 2000s, as you were running <laughs> that that little transport business in Dublin, was it? Yes. Was it in Dublin? Yes, in Dub- uh, Dublin. Uh, look, look, look where you've come. And a big congratulations to you. And on behalf of Discus, great cheers. And uh, Thank you. keep it up and count us in. Let us know how we can support. Thank you very much. You've been great so far for support, Chris. So I appreciate everything you, yourself and the team at Discus do for us. Great. Cheers, John. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks a lot. The Spirited Advocate podcast was brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. If you'd like to be a guest speaker on the show or send us topic suggestions to cover, please contact us at podcast at distilledspirits.org. And please like and share these episodes. Your support is very appreciated.